Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, and as you, my listeners, know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, like tonight, we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some relationship with New York, the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement here in the city. We've focused on African-American history in the city, which actually goes back to the time of the Dutch. We've talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've delved into the history of punk and opera. We've looked at our public library systems, this being the city that it is. We have not one, not two, but three public library systems. We've explored some of our greatest train stations and even some of our beloved bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight is one of those special shows. We're exploring a facet of the city, and that specifically is one of our one of the country's amazing founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. And then in the second part of the show, we're going to explore how the life and times of Hamilton and some of his contemporaries helped shape the place that New York is today, and specifically in regards to its commerce and the commercial spirit of this amazing place that we live in. Our first guest is a returning guest to Rediscovering New York, Joyce Gold. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Joyce has published two guidebooks, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. She's contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. And if all this wasn't enough, the New York Times recently called Joyce, and this is a quote, the doyen of New York City tour guides, a level of recognition and accomplishment any tour guide would relish. And we welcome back to Rediscovering New York, Joyce Gold. Welcome, Joyce. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. Um, I always like to ask all of my guests, and I've asked you before, but we do have new listeners on each show. You're not originally from the city, are you? No, I was born in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, less than 50 miles from the birthplace of our possible future president, Mr. Biden. So that's where I was. And then we moved to New York some years later. I've lived here for a long time. Well, if I said from your mouth to God's ears, it might uh, reveal a certain political uh, 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 view, which I won't do. Not now, anyway. Um, how did you get involved in the work you do, specifically bringing New York's history to life for the people who were lucky enough to go on your on your walking tours? Oh, thank you. Well, I was a computer analyst, and in 1976, I was a systems analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Um, I passed interesting streets in lower Manhattan every day coming from the subway to my office. And then one day there was a fabulous old used bookstore on Ann Street called Mendoza's. And I picked up a hundred year old book about old New York and the streets they talked about were where the city really began, which happened to be where I was working. So suddenly I could look at Broadway and not just see the current buildings, but imagine what it was like before the Native Americans were there, what it was like when it was Dutch, what it was like when it was English. And all the streets downtown, I could just visualize as I read about them. So it changed my daily experience. And at those days, a lot of New Yorkers had no idea about city history. So I began to design tours for basically New Yorkers about the city to change their daily lives. 
And we're very lucky to have two guests tonight. Our second guest also is an expert and also published in New York history. That's Steve Jaffe, but uh, we'll get to him in the second half of the show. Um, Joyce, before we talk about Hamilton's life in New York, um, and most everyone has heard of him, especially because of the musical. I was about to say the new musical, but that would be dating myself, uh, the musical Hamilton. What did Alexander Hamilton do? And aside from him being killed in the duel with Aaron Burr, which we'll talk about later, why is he so famous? Well, for somebody that famous for what he did, it's amazing that most people had heard about him primarily for his death. But he did a lot as a public figure. He did a lot as a private figure. He was uh, the most important aide to George Washington all through the American Revolution. He wrote over 300 letters in both English and French to uh, the generals. And um, he uh, writes 51 of the 83 Federalist Papers, uh, telling why the Constitution should be approved by the different states. And um, he, uh, that's what he does in public life. Washington realizes he has a brilliant financial mind, makes him the first Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, which I guess is one of the main reasons he's, his face is on the much circulated $10 bill. He founds in public life the U.S. Coast Guard. He founds the U.S. Mint. But that wasn't all because then he, uh, after serving several years as the Treasury Secretary, he becomes a private citizen and is the finest, many people felt, lawyer in town. Uh, Did a lot of things as a private citizen as well. He founds America's oldest newspaper, the New York Post, continuously published since 1801. And uh, was into many, many things at the start of the Republic. Uh, Like so many people who make New York their home, Alexander Hamilton was an immigrant, but he didn't immigrate here when we were the United States. Where was Hamilton from originally? Well, he was born on the island of Nevis, which is a part of the Leeward Islands in the West Indies. He got a job in St. Croix, and that's where he left to come to New York City. It wasn't, one, it wasn't the country yet. It was still a colony. One interesting thing about Hamilton, which I, I want to um, ask you about a little bit later, um, he and his brother were denied entry into a church school because they were born out of wedlock. So they were partially educated by a Jewish schoolmistress. Uh, Nevis uh, had a large Jewish population, and I'm going to circle back to that in, in a little bit. When did Hamilton come to New York, and what brought him here? Well, What brought him here was the support of a number of people in St. Croix and Nevis. Uh, The Eye of a Hurricane is a wonderful song in the play Hamilton. And what happened was there was a huge hurricane that went on for days and did a lot of damage. And Hamilton wrote about it. He was a teenager, but he wrote brilliantly about this. And uh, he, he seemed to have so much skill People often recognized him as soon as they met him for his skill, but his skill seemed first to have been appreciated because of this writing that gets into the uh, newspaper in St. Croix. Uh, And some people decide, well, here's a guy with talent, a kid with talent. Let's raise money because he didn't have much money at all. Send him to America. He'll become a doctor. He'll come back to Nevis. (laughs) Never. He took the money. He never went back to Nevis. And he went to school in New York at? He went to King's College. He had wanted to go to Rutgers, uh, but Rutgers wouldn't let him have an accelerated course, although they had let Burr have an accelerated course. More on Burr, obviously, later. But uh, he went to King's College. Now, after the American Revolution, officially, King's College moves to Nova Scotia, but where it had been becomes Columbia University. So people frequently say King's College became Columbia. Not 100% true, but that's one way to look at it. Not to be confused with the King's College, which presently is in New York. It's a Christian university. Correct. uh, Actually, Very different. Um, Actually, the famous Dinesh D'Souza was president, uh, but we won't go into his history. uh, There I go again with another little uh, political snipe. Anyway, um, then King's College was closed during the revolution. Mm -hmm. Um, When did Hamilton join up with a military unit? 
Well, the British wanted to make the colonists quake in their boots so they wouldn't attack. And they send a couple of ships into the harbor and way up the Hudson River to show New York citizens just how defenseless they were. Now, would this have, would have been in 1775 after uh, the battles of Concord and, and Lexington? I believe so. Okay. And uh, when the British were beginning to be on their way to New York from New England, and he amasses a group of friends, three in particular, who uh, go to the battery and start trying to shoot cannon. It wasn't a successful attack because the cannon, uh, some of the people working the cannon were kind of hungover, among other things, <laughs> and they hadn't cleaned the cannon properly and it backfired. So it really didn't help. But his spirit was just so strong that as soon as he heard there was a reason to defend Manhattan, he was there with his, his with his crowd. Uh, sounds like a typical New York story. Uh, some of them were maybe out in the bars till four in the morning and couldn't get the cannon uh, working. <laughs> well, there was uh, this very famous um, area of prostitution where they say there were 500 prostitutes. And it's possible that some of the men who should have been fixing up the cannon were involved in, in that the night before. Hmm. Well, we um, we could talk a lot about Hamilton's history in the Continental Army, but since this is a show about Hamilton in New York, mm-hmm. let's fast forward to after the war, uh, which sort of ended, the fighting ended in 1781, but uh, uh, it really didn't officially end until 1783. Hamilton comes back to New York after the fighting, and uh, he gets his law license to practice law in New York in, in, in 1782. Mm-hmm. Um, he was appointed to the American Congress at the time. It was called the Congress of the Confederation. These were when we did not, it was the United States of America, but we didn't have the system of government that we have now. And uh, he also served as a member of the Assembly from New York County, which I didn't know that he was actually in the state legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, he came back to New York City in 1783 when the British evacuated the city. The Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783. What role did Hamilton play, and the things I want to ask you about um, in New York after he returned, what role did he play in the opening of uh, the college that would be sort of newly born that came out of King's College and that became Columbia? Well, he was on the board of the college. He was a trustee of Columbia. They end up giving him an honorary Master's of Arts degree, and uh, so he had a hand in it. And let's talk about the bank that Hamilton founded, the Bank of New York. Um, why is it that he, that someone who was in the military and who was a lawyer uh, and rallied the troops, uh, shoot the cannon, uh, what was behind him, his hand in helping to found what became the first, actually, first commercial bank in the United States? Well, you know, Hamilton had come from an area in the West Indies that was a real center point. For He was involved with Mr. Kruger's uh, finances, so he had a very good sense of what importance finance had. And there was quite a chaotic uh, situation in New York at the time. There were many different foreign currencies, uh, different states had different amounts that a currency was worth. And he hoped that the Bank of New York would counter chaos. Now, it opened in 1784, but he also helped start the Bank of the United States in 1791 because, again, he wanted to bring order into the American currency. Mm. So he, uh, he issued notes and listed current exchange rates and uh, had a sense of the outcome that he wanted more than other people seemed to have. Joyce, was Hamilton involved at all with the bank's management or its business operations after he helped to to found it? Well, he was involved in many, many things, and I don't think he was primarily involved in that. I could be wrong about that, though. Not too sure. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours, exploring the life of Alexander Hamilton, specifically in New York City. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. everyone. We're back to Rediscovering New York and our episode about Alexander Hamilton in New York, as well as some of his contemporaries who contributed and laid the foundation for the kind of city that we have today. Um, Joyce, I want to ask you about your business, uh, Joyce Gold History Tours. You're a fine tour guide. Um, uh, and of course, like most people in your business, you went on hiatus um, in the middle of the COVID crisis in New York. But now you're back to giving private tours, aren't you? Yes, I've just done a couple of private tours this week, and I really like to do them because I can focus. They're all custom designed, and I can focus on what is interesting to the people who hire me. And I do a lot of tours these off. I'm planning a lot of tours these days that are of any of the four dozen or so neighborhoods that I specialize in. And people come with their families. They come with their friends. Last uh, Sunday, somebody had an anniversary, and that was the gift he gave his wife. You know, people are interested in giving experiences these days even more than items often. And um, the other one, people were in for a wedding, and they were from different parts of the country. So private tours, my website has lots of choices. And then hopefully in the spring, I'll start giving my public tours where people can just come and show up on a tour that's pre-scheduled. But uh, it's very interesting. And I've been designing new tours and uh, doing things having to do with New York history that aren't about touring too. Well, I I love your tours. I've been on dozens of them. And uh, I also can speak firsthand. Uh, I had a uh, a private tour of uh, right when you put together your uh, the history of when Jewish people first came to New York. I remember that very fondly. It was wonderful having you all to myself for that tour. (laughs) Uh, It's a great it's a great treat, everybody. And Joyce, uh, you also have an Instagram account, which is Joyce Gold History Tours. Exactly. And your website where people can find out about your tours, private and otherwise, are is? Well, my website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. But uh, if people send me their email address, I would be glad to let them know when my public tours begin. Um, Hamilton in New York. um, Hamilton's life was so impacted by Jewish people in the place where he grew up. I'm wondering how that may have impacted his relationship with Jewish people in the Jewish community in New York. Jewish people have been living here uh, in New York, first New Amsterdam, since 1652 or 1653. Do we know anything about Hamilton's relationship with with New York's Jewish community? Well, uh, according to Ron Chernow, who, of course, is the source for Lin-Manuel and uh, other people and most things having to do with Hamilton, Uh, Hamilton had a lifelong reverence for Jewish people, and he said the progress of the Jews is the effect of some great providential plan. So he was taught by a Jewish woman in Nevis. Nevis, uh, one quarter of the population of Nevis was Jewish at the time Hamilton uh, lived there. And uh, he learned Hebrew in in the Jewish school and the school was in a synagogue, 
And, you know, they say that the reason he went to that was because the other schools wouldn't admit him because his parents were not married to one another. His mother's husband, first husband, well, only husband, really, uh, would not refuse to give her a divorce so that when she married Hamilton, when she was involved with Hamilton, sorry, um, they were not married. Oh, I didn't know that Hamilton learned Hebrew. That's that that's really yeah. fascinating. Um, Hamilton was the United States first secretary of the Treasury. Um, how did he get that position? Well, there were only three secretaries uh, that George Washington decided on. Um, Jefferson was state, Knox was war, and Hamilton, which a much, with a much larger staff, was treasury. And George Washington appointed all three. He could see that Hamilton had a brilliant financial mind, and uh, that's why he gave him that position. Well, speaking of the first seat of the U.S. government, let's go back to Hamilton in New York. Um, the new capital of the United States after the Constitution was signed was New York City. Mm-hmm. Why New York? Well, there were a few reasons. For one thing, it was sort of midway between the New England delegates, states, and the South. So geographically, it was a good reason. It had an extremely active port, basically at the foot of Wall Street. And so the commerce that flowed into it was was why. Also, Washington, D.C. was not ready. Mm. Well, the capital was moved pretty quickly after 1789 to Philadelphia, um, before it was moved to the District of Columbia, which is what it was called originally. It, wasn't, it was only called Washington after Washington died in 1799, and Adams uh, uh, and the cabinet decided that they would move to, to rename it Washington, D.C. Um, many people know about the idea of establishing and building a new capital for the U.S. right in the middle of the northern and the southern states, which is how they came up with, with where Washington is now. Um, but why Philadelphia? Why did Hamilton and those who supported him agree to have the capital moved out of New York before the government moved to the district for what would be 10 years? Well, first of all, Philadelphia had been uh, the first Continental Congress met there. Independence Hall was being used by the Pennsylvania General Assembly before the revolution. So the First Continental Congress met there as well. And I believe it was the most populated city in colonial times. It wasn't until 1820 that Manhattan, which was all there was to New York City at the time, surpassed Philadelphia uh, in population. Mm. It was also the idea was to get it out of New York and Philadelphia seemed a logical step. Also, Robert Morris pushed for it to be in uh, Philadelphia. So that was sort of on its way. It was there for 10 years and it was on its way to the District of Columbia. Well, many of us can identify who Hamilton's uh, um, contemporaries were in the U.S. government, certainly Washington Adams, uh, Jefferson, even though they didn't get along so well. Um, who, who were Hamilton's associates who were, who were New Yorkers at the time? Well, there were three in particular, Lafayette, who had already, as a teenager of 19, when he first comes to uh, America, had come into his title of Marquis. Uh, there was Hercules Mulligan, a very colorful character. And there was a man... He sounds it, Hercules Mulligan. <laughs> that alone, he probably wouldn't have been if he'd had a, a, a straighter name, but it was quite a wonderful name. <laughs> he also served, Mulligan served as a spy during the British occupation during the war because he was a very high-end tailor. And a lot of his clients were officers of the British, and he would get all kinds of information from them that he would pass along to the uh, to the American command. And the third guy that they all drink together and, and work together was a man named Lawrence. Lawrence's father was the head had been the head of the Continental Congress. Uh, Lawrence very intent on uh, freeing the slaves in the southern United States and does not survive uh, the end of the revolution. Well, that takes us to speaking of ends of something that takes us to the end of Hamilton's life. You know what what many what most people know about Hamilton is that he was killed in a duel. Um, um, thankfully not Iowa Shores. It was out of a different state and not not New York. Um, What was so striking about Hamilton's death? Well, there were a few things. First of all, Hamilton didn't believe in a duel. Duels were sort of like a fast, uh, a fast. There were ten steps to a duel, which I keep having to quote um, 
Lin-Manuel's Hamilton because he goes into the 10 steps of a duel. Hamilton didn't believe in dueling, but he also felt that you had to stand up for your honor. So that was one strange thing. Another strange thing was that he and Burr had long been at odds with each other because they had very different views of the world and their position in it. And it just erupts finally in the duel. Also, it was in New Jersey. And it was because they often said that, uh, you know, it was illegal in New Jersey, too. But New Jersey wasn't that strict about prosecuting for things the way they were in New York. Another thing I find very strange is for a month, Hamilton and others were talking about it, debating it. But nobody told Hamilton's wife. And she lives 47 years after he's dead without him. Mm. Let's talk about Eliza Hamilton. Um, what was her life like after Hamilton was killed? Well, she always played down herself and played up the great man. But uh, refugees from the Napoleonic Wars had come to New York in the early 1800s. And she felt so strongly to, about helping the women particularly, and the children, that this becomes her life's work. For over 25 years, she is the director of New York's first um, first orphan asylum. And so that's one thing she does. At the age of 91, she moves from New York to Washington, D.C. to be with her recently divorced daughter, one of eight children that she bore, and becomes friendly with Abraham Lincoln. So she lives till 97. She lived longer after he died than he lived. So quite amazing woman. Wow. Well, Hamilton had a good number of children. I want to talk about two of his sons. One, um, how and why was one of Hamilton's sons killed? Well, Hamilton's oldest son was Philip. Philip had just graduated from Columbia College, and he hears an opponent uh, from the other party against his father, George Eaker, talk, talk against Alexander Hamilton. Well, the rather rash uh, son, Philip, uh, challenges Eaker to a duel. He asks his father for advice. His father said, well, it's much more honorable not to shoot on the first go around. And Philip is mortally wounded. So uh, in 1801, that's when Hamilton first publishes the New York Post. Its first big story was the death of Philip Hamilton. And of course, Hamilton met his in the same fashion that his son did. On the same uh, rounds with the same pistols. Wow, wow. Which used to be on display at the uh, uh, Little Museum at the Bank of New York uh, at, uh, at 44 Broadway. Um, I don't know where it is now, now that the building has been using for other purposes. And a little bit of historical irony, um, one of Hamilton's other children represented the wife of Aaron Burr, in a divorce case, actually a case that also was monumental and that established a legal precedent in New York State. That was Betsy Jamel. That's um, right. Alexander Hamilton Jr. Okay, okay. Well, Joyce, we have about a minute left. Um, I want to ask you, um, are there places in New York where Hamilton lived that we can still see today? Because most well, of them were... Different, uh, sorry, he lived at different sites of Wall Street, worked on Wall Street. But in 1802, two years before he was to die, he and Eliza, after the death of their son, uh, got a little place up on what becomes 143rd Street in Harlem, the building has since been moved twice, but it's a fabulous place to visit. Uh, I was there the other day, and I'm not sure they reopened it uh, with the epidemic pandemic going on, but it's at 141st Street, just off Convent Avenue. It's a national monument. And Hamilton Grange is a great place to see. You can see it in Hamilton's, Hamilton Heights on 141st Street. And you can see his grave on Wall Street, very appropriately enough, in Trinity Churchyard. Yes, well, Joyce, thank you so much for being such a fabulous guest on the first part of the special program about Hamilton and some of his contemporaries and how they helped make New York the city that it is today. My first guest on this show has been Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. You can now take advantage of Joyce's private tour schedule at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com and also find her on Instagram. We'll be back after a short break. And when we return, we will speak with our second guest about some of the folks who came right after Hamilton and the impact they made on New York City. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to 
the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. And you're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 212- Four nine five zero three one seven. Our program is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of what makes New York, New York. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Brown Harris. Vince's show can be heard on podcast. That's Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco. You can like this show on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle there, my handle's there, Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is Stephen Jaffe. Stephen Jaffe is a historian, writer, and curator who has worked for the Museum of the City of New York, the New York Historical Society, the South Street Seaport Museum, and other institutions over a 27-year career in public history. A native New Yorker, he was educated in New York City public schools, Princeton University, and Harvard, where he attained his PhD. Sorry, he earned his PhD in 1989. At the Museum of the City of New York, Steve was co-curator of the award-winning permanent exhibition, New York at its core. It opened in 2016 and is still ongoing. He was the inaugural curator of Activist New York, which is also an ongoing exhibition, and also curator of America's Mayor. We're not talking about Rudy Giuliani. That's John V. Lindsay, The Reinvention of New York. That's in 2010. I remember Mayor Lindsay. And oh, also yeah. City of Workers, City of Struggle, How Labor Movements Changed New York. That was in 2019. Steve is the author and co-author of several books, including New York at War, Four Centuries of Combat, Fear, and Intrigue in Gotham. It was published by Basic Books in 2012. And Activist New York, A History of People, Protest, and Politics. That was published in 2018. Steve lives in Maplewood, New Jersey with his wife and two sons. Steve, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. 
Thank you, Jeff. I'm very pleased to be here. You're originally from New York. Where, did you, where in the city did you grow up? Yeah. Well, I grew up in the West Village um, and uh, during the 60s and 70s, which, needless to say, were a very interesting time to be in New York, uh, anywhere in New York. Uh, certainly very interesting to be growing up in, in the West Village. Um, and so I really consider myself, as it were, a Sabra of Greenwich Village. Um, you know, uh, uh, Joyce will, will appreciate that, I'm, I'm sure. Um, also, I, I can say Joyce was mentioning Mendoza's bookstore. I'm also one of the folks who uh, was privileged to be at the right place at the right time to enjoy that, that place, which was one of, these remar- one of those remarkable, one-of-a-kind New York City places. So, well, I, yeah. I never got to Mendoza's, but I do remember very fondly Dauber and Pine down on oh. Fifth Avenue between 12th and 13th. I have some books in my library that I got for a song back in the 80s. It was a great place. I remember yeah. Murray Dauber very well. He was a yep. Yep. great, great bookseller. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you develop your love and passion for history, Steve? Gee, um, really, the honest answer is as far back as I can remember, which must be around 1964 or so. <laughs> um, and that really is a function, you know, of, of, of being a New Yorker, of growing up in the city. My, my parents were avid museum goers. And um, so they would take me not only to the Met and the Museum of Natural History and so on, the other great institutions, art and science institutions, but they would take me to places like the Museum of the City of New York and the New York uh, Historical Society and the South Street Seaport Museum, which was just a fledgling institution back in the late 60s. And um, uh, so, so, and my father was a grip, both my parents really, but my father was the, was the son of immigrants and was very, very interested in, in history generally, but very interested in the history of the city. So a kind of, a kind of uh, by osmosis or ingestion or something, it just kind of flowed into me at a very, very early age as a passion, you know? And so, uh, so but I do think that was about being, in New York, in this amazing place with this amazing history. Yeah, one of the, the things that really um, got me hooked on the, the history of the city that I'm from, New York, is uh, mm-hmm. uh, like you, you know, my mother took us to the South Street Seaport Museum back in the early 70s when, you know, there was nothing there except for the museum and all the fish businesses. And of course, that yeah. is uh, uh, that just see this late 18th century. So uh, uh, it was such it was such a wonderful experience. Um, and that brings us to. New York at the time of the revolution and right after it. Um, Mm -hmm. New York was not the country's leading city after the Revolutionary War, but within a few years, it was becoming the leading city in the United States in terms of commerce, Mm -hmm. finance, manufacturing, population, and eventually even culture. What was New York like right after the Revolutionary War? Yeah, well, first first off, uh, Joyce alluded to this earlier, the fact that you know, we think of New York as being the city for various reasons. And of course, it's it is really since, as Joyce said, the 1810s or 1820s, it has been the largest, most populous city uh, in the Americas. Uh, but originally, at the time of the revolution, uh, it is Philadelphia. Philadelphia is larger. It's New York's really the second city, and, and, and Boston is sort of a distant and declining third in terms of just sheer numbers of people. Philadelphia at the time of the revolution is something like 25, 30,000 people. That's a big city for America. That's the biggest city in America at the time. New York is 20, 25, 26,000. But what happens is during the revolution, during the, the long British occupation, that that set in after the young Alexander Hamilton and his uh, his you know pals who are trying to sober up and shoot cannon at the British, um, you know the British take New York um, after defeating George Washington at the disastrous Battle of Long Island or otherwise known as the Battle of Brooklyn, and for seven years New York is an occupied city. It's the British headquarters for fighting the revolution, um, and. Uh, but to make a long story short, by the end of the revolution, when when the United States uh, wins the war, um, the city's been reduced to around half of its 
its original population before the war. It's about 12,000 people at most. It is a place beset by uh, by terrible fires that burned literally hundreds of uh, buildings during the war. Um, the British have left. They've taken most of the hard currency, the coin, gold and silver coins with them at the end of the revolution. Um, and uh, so economically and demographically in terms of population, the city is kind of a sorry uh, uh, shadow of its former self. And so the, the, the challenge facing New Yorkers <clears throat> at the end of the American Revolution, and those New Yorkers, of course, include Alexander Hamilton, and numerous other luminaries of the day, is how do you jumpstart this place back to be not only what it once was, but because already it was the second city, you know, before the revolution, but how do you sort of clinch the, its, its future as a place which hopefully, um, in the eyes of New Yorkers, will surpass Philadelphia, you know, and, and, and be kind of the dynamo, the, 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 uh, the capital of everything except politics in the sense that, you know, you think about Paris and London and the other great cities of the world, right, uh, of that era, they are not only the largest and most commercial cities, they're also the, the capital cities. Um, and uh, what happens in New York in this period after the revolution is New York does lose the the role of U.S. capital to Philadelphia and then Washington D.C. as you were discussing earlier, but it remains the it becomes really the great city in every other possible way, commercially, industrially, financially, culturally, intellectually, and that in large part has to do with the kind of leverage that Alexander Hamilton and his contemporaries bring to bear in New York in the 1780s and 1790s, immediately following the war. So would you say that Hamilton just didn't have, he was not just an incredible visionary for the United States, but he also had a vision for New York that was extra or in addition to the vision that he had for the future of the U.S. as a country? I, I think that's true in the sense that he, if, you know, if you think about you think about our our founding fathers, you think about Washington and Jefferson and James Madison, and the list goes on. Who are those guys? <laughs> they're all farm, basically gentlemen farmers, which means they're ge- they're ge- quote unquote gentlemen slave owners. They're plantation owners, which means that their 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 whole point of view is agricultural. Yes, they're they're in commerce too, but they're they're men of the countryside. Really, the two major founding fathers who are city people are Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton um, uh, does come from the Caribbean, which very much is linked into New York commercially, as Joyce was uh, was was mentioning earlier in the late colonial period. Um, Hamilton is a man of commerce. He is a brilliant. He has a brilliant financial mind. He understands how credit works. He understands uh, the role that a bank can play. Um, and I, I think there's a way in which New York, in micro, as you're suggesting, uh, you know, New York is in microcosm what Hamilton, in a sense, sees the entire com- uh, country. The, the young United States is becoming. It's a place where, yeah, sure, agriculture is important. And agriculture was important to New York City. I mean, we're, the merchants in New York City and the shippers are relying heavily on agricultural produce to make to make their fortunes. But he sees the country, uh, the future of the country has to also be commercial and financial and industrial. And um, New York is becoming all of those things partly due to Hamilton himself in the years immediately following the revolution. So there is, there is a, a linkage between the grand vision of, you know, a strong uh, United States under the federal government and New York city is kind of the, the, the signature city of, of, mm. of this new Republic. Wow. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Steve Jaffe. He's a historian, writer, and curator. And we're going to, on the second part of this interview, we're going to focus on some of Hamilton's contemporaries and those who came in New York right after him. We'll be back in a moment. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. We're back to this special episode about Alexander Hamilton and some of his contemporaries who helped make New York the great place we know and cherish today. Our guest is, our second guest on the show is Steve Jaffe. Steve is a historian, writer, and curator. Um, Steve, I mentioned at the beginning that you you published a couple of books, New York at War and Activist New York, but you also published a book called Capital of Capital, which is right on, on tune. You want to talk about that that book? Sure. It, it's certainly a book that's relevant to our topic tonight, and uh, I, it, I co-authored it with uh, historian Jessica Lawton. Um, it was a book that accompanied another exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York called Capital of Capital, which really tried to trace the history of banking in New York. Um, and um, it, uh, you know, for those interested, I think it's a, it's a, you know, if you're interested in seeing the book. Um, it is visually very, uh, very, I wouldn't say lavish, but it, it's color, It's a colorful book. It's not just the book of words. And um, it really, I think, illustrates rather vividly the role New York City has played in banking and capitalism over the centuries. So it was actually a very challenging uh, project for me, because personally, because I'm not per se an economic historian. So I had a lot of learning or relearning to do. But uh, it really did prove to me in the writing of it that, uh, that you know, the, the people of this generation that we're talking about, Hamilton um, and, and others, uh, really uh, set New York on the path that it continues to, to, to follow today as one of the world's great, uh, great cities of commerce and, and finance. And speaking of others, let's uh, talk about some of Hamilton's both contemporaries and people, of course, who were around after Hamilton was no longer on the planet. Um, Robert Fulton, we all know him as the father of the steamboat. Was he from New York originally? He was not. He was from rural Pennsylvania, but he was a guy who ends up uh, gravitating towards cities in his lifetime, goes to Philadelphia, is, is, a, is an accomplished one, one thing we forget about, we often forget about him is that he was an accomplished artist, a painter. Um, but he also was something of a Renaissance man, you know, a little bit of an American Leonardo da Vinci, I suppose, in that he also was fascinated by engineering and mechanics and issues of propulsion and also actually issues of mass destruction in, in the sense that he saw himself for a while primarily as a designer and inventor of weapon systems, um, including exploding mines that could be floated uh, and you know blow up warships. And he's also one of the pioneers of the submarine, actually, as a military uh, weapon, which he tried to sell both to the British and then to Napoleon. So he's a man of London and Paris before he comes to New York uh, rather late in his life and career. 
Um, but he does come to New York, um, continues to work on Tinker with various military defensive uh, systems, um, uh, partly to defend uh, New York against possible English or French invasion uh, during that period before and during the War of 1812. So, um, but he is another one of these visionaries because he does, he is the guy who finally figures out how to bring everything together to to, to create a viable uh, steam engine that can propel a waterborne vessel. And that's his great claim to fame, of course. And like Hamilton, he's all, I believe he's also buried in Trinity Churchyard. I've seen his. Yes, yes, I believe. I've seen, yes, I've seen his grave, along with a lot of other people there. Um, who was that's Jeremiah right. Thompson, Steve? Yeah, Jeremiah Thompson is a is is really one of the unsung, uh, uh, you know, figures of this period, but quite important, I would argue, other historians I think would argue as well. Jeremiah Thompson is an English Quaker. He's from Yorkshire uh, in Northern England, and he immigrates uh, to New York City, sets up in business here um, after the revolution. And his great contribution is, along with others, but he's the guy whose name kind of has settled on this. He's really the, the pioneer of, of, of the so-called packet ship uh, and the packet ship line. In 1818, uh, Thompson uh, really sets up a network with other Quaker merchants in Liverpool, England. And what they do is they create this uh, sailing ship line, the Black Ball Line, as it's named, which schedules vessels to leave from uh, from New York, from the East River docks, to go on such and such a date every month. And on such and such a date every month, a, a similar vessel will be leaving uh, Liverpool, and they'll, they'll be crisscrossing, so to speak. But this will go on all year. Um, what is revolutionary about that, and, and seem, may seem strange to us today, um, is that it was an innovation to have that strict a schedule for cargo ships and, for that matter, passenger ships. And the, the, the Black Bull Line took both passengers and cargoes. Um, before that date, uh, you know, a ship owner might advertise a date in the local newspaper, you know, in Hamilton's Evening Post or, or any, any one of the other New York City dailies or weekly papers saying, well, on, on June 23rd, uh, my ship, uh, the Great Republic, is going to sail to Liverpool or wherever else. However, if he had not really booked enough passengers or filled his hold of that ship with enough cargo, he might wait a few days. So the advertised date or the stipulated date and the actual date of sailing might be different. To be able to say, okay, rain or shine, full or empty, who, you know, however many uh, um, uh passengers or cargoes I've got, wares I'm carrying, we're, we're going. That became a major selling point for this kind of vessel. And, as, and it really um, lubricated trade between New York and England in the post-revolutionary period, so much so that Liverpool, because of these packet ships, Liverpool becomes not only the great port of trade, uh, for New York City, uh, where New Yorkers are shipping southern cotton primarily to Liverpool. Then it's going into the, the uh, factories of Manchester, England, nearby to be turned into cotton cloth. Um, uh, but they're taking, when the ships are coming back, they start bringing Irish immigrants who have crossed from Ireland to Liverpool. Mm. And that whole immigration story that leads us to Ellis Island eventually um, really starts with Jeremiah Thompson um, creating this regularized route of ships. So it's not only a commerce story, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an immigration story. And so in a certain sense, one can argue that Thompson is the, is the, is the sort of forefather or maybe even father of 19th century transatlantic commerce, which is so critical for New York City's growth and also the great waves of immigration. Uh, that start populating the city in the mid, early and mid 19th centuries. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, um, but speaking of water, that brings us to Governor DeWitt Clinton. Who was yes. he and what uh, and how did he contribute to the growth of New York and to the Empire State? Yeah, another, another remarkable character and visionary in his own way. Um, uh, part of the Clinton political dynasty, which is a family 
um, of, uh, of landholders in the Hudson Valley who become very involved in the, in the colonies politics before the revolution and continues so afterwards so that his that george clinton who's his uh um, hewitt clinton's uncle is the, one of the post-revolutionary governors of of new york state hewitt clinton is mayor of new york city for a time um he is elected governor of new york in the and, and in the years immediately after the war of 1812 he pushes through his vision uh, which is to build this massive canal across New York State from Albany uh, to Buffalo on the frontier of Lake Erie, straight across what is still in a large part a wilderness with farm country, because he recognizes, as do others working on this with him, that New York, if New York can get the jump into the West, which is where the frontier is, where the farmers and the pioneers are settling, especially the upper north, the upper Midwest around the Great Lakes. New York can blow everyone else out of the water. You know, Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore. If New York has that direct water route to the Great Lakes, then you're getting all the farm produce and lumber and so on. And you can also, from New York City up to Albany, ship across to that western frontier. Tons and tons and tons and millions of dollars of merchandise, which the farmers want, the settlers want, and the townspeople of the emerging frontier want. So really, you know, I was brought up sort of as you may have been, Jeff, I don't know, but but I'm dating myself. I'm dating myself, certainly, you know, uh, the song about you know, da, 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 on the, I, I can't even remember the lyrics, but about the Erie Canal, my, my gal Sal, and the rest of it. And I said, what is this? This is this corny, <laughs> as a kid, what is this corny business about the canal boats? Well, <laughs> it's not about that, really. It's about New York glomming into the West and about the amazing connection between the Midwest and New York City and Western development. Chicago becomes Chicago for a time, the second city, now the third largest city in the country, largely because initially um, farmers in it, on the Illinois frontier can get their stuff to Chicago. It goes on boats across the lakes, ends up eventually mm. at Buffalo, New York, comes down the Erie Canal, comes down the Hudson River to New York City. And and so that's that's one of the great stories. So Dewey Clinton is is the, 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 uh, the father of that, certainly. Well, when that then New York then became the Empire State. Steve, thank yes. you so much. We have My been pleasure. spending uh, this evening's show talking about some of the founding fathers of New York's commerce. We've talked about Alexander Hamilton, Jeremiah Thompson, Robert Fulton, and Governor DeWitt Clinton, who was the vision behind the Erie Canal that made New York the Empire State. My second guest has been Steve Jaffe. Steve is a historian, writer, and curator. Uh, Steve is published. You can get his books, New York at War, Capital of Capital, and Activist New York on Amazon.com. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook. Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors: Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off: I am Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs locally, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant for the show is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a curious person always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 